Well, we finished up our study of Job. I did want to mention this, uh, that Brian had brought to my attention. The new tabletops are out on the table in the narthex. And I don't know how many people here are taking advantage of this. I would encourage all of you to do that. It's a very, there's a, there's a daily devotional in here plus different articles. Uh, very enlightening. This is the magazine, by the way, mo- most of you are familiar with Kevin Gartner. He's the guy that usually comes and fills in with for me when I'm not here. And he's going to be here in just a few weeks. Lori and I are planning on going to Texas again, and hopefully that won't be canceled. But we're doing that near the end of the month. But Kevin's going to be here, but he's actually one of the editors of this magazine. That's what he does for a living. <laughs> So anyway, I would encourage you guys to take note of that and to utilize uh, that, that very important resource that's provided to us. Okay, we are moving on this morning. Uh, jumping from the Old Testament into the New Testament. To a book that... You know, some people have favorite books in the Bible, and I'd have to tell you that John is, John's gospel is right up there near the top for me, if it is not the, my most favorite book of all. Uh, I just want to speak about some things before we really get into the book, uh, but some, some interesting notes I wanted to make, and one of those is this, is of, of the four gospels, there are only two that were actually written by those guys that we know are called the Apostles the Gospel of Matthew, and the Gospel of John. Uh, we also know that, that Jesus had an inner circle. He had the 12 disciples, but he had three disciples who occupied an even more central and important place uh, for him, and they were Peter, John, and James. So what we need to understand from this is that, that John, the author of this gospel, was not only just one of the twelve, he was one of the inner circle. He was the one that had a more intimate, a closer relationship with Jesus. There is a personal depth uh, to John that we just simply don't find in the other gospels. It's written on a very personal level about someone who knew someone else very, very well. So what I would say to you this morning is that if you really want to know Jesus on a more personal, personal level, there's probably no better place for you to go in the, in the Bible than to go to the gospel according to John. As I said before, it certainly is one of my very most favorite books. I don't know exactly how many times I've read it. Certainly at this time, at least 30 times I've read all the way through the book with the Gospel of John. Uh, it enlightens my spirit every time I do that. I learn new things every time I do that. And what it says to me is this, is that the, the, the bread of life, the, the Word of God is, is so deep that no matter how many times we return to it and we study through it, there's always more and more and more. And the more you do it, the deeper you're going to find yourself going. And the more profound influence and effect it's going to have on you. 
Unlike the other Gospels, John's purpose is not to give a chronological listing of all the particular events that took place during Jesus' earthly ministry. There's no birth narrative, etc., etc., etc. What John has done is just selected particular events in the life of Jesus, and he has amplified those. And he's spoken in regard to those from a more personal level. He gives us much more detailed descriptions of a handful of events in the adult life of our Savior. His purpose in writing the book, I don't think you could get a better statement uh, than this, than from chapter 20, verse 31, where it says that I have written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to begin to unpack what's called the prologue, the very beginning of the book, which makes it somewhat unique. You don't find this in the other Gospels. Uh, this is chapter 1, verses 1 through 18. We're not even going to try to get through all of it today. Uh, let me just read to you what J.C. Ryle said in regard to the Gospel of John. He said, the things which are peculiar to, his, uh, to this Gospel are among the most precious possessions of the church. No one of the four Gospel writers has given us such full statements of the divinity of Christ. We need to understand that. One of the things that is, uh, that as, is uh, emphasized over and over again through this Gospel from the very beginning all the way to the end of it is that the fact that Jesus Christ is not only man, but he is also God, God incarnate. So I'm going to read, uh, I'm going to read through the whole prologue. We're not going to do it all this morning, but it all kind of goes together. So beginning with verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. It upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is Hebrews. What am I reading? Goodness gracious. Does someone say something to me? Okay, John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, as his own people did not receive him. But to all who received him, but believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
We have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord in the pro- uh, as the prophet Isaiah said. I'm going to stop there. That last part, by the way, is not considered to be part of the prologue. The re- reason I read it is because John is actually brought forth in the prologue itself. Okay? So, in the beginning, does that remind you of anything? What? What does it remind you of? Genesis chapter 1, 1. So we need to understand that there is a real connection being made here between the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the beginning, the Word uh, was the Word, and the Word was God. The two things go hand in hand. So what does it mean by the beginning? Well, you know, the more you get to know about God, the more awesome you know that God is. And one of those is this is God's eternal. I mean, God, God there's, there was, never was a time when God was not. God has always been. He, he is today and he always will be. There is no beginning and there is no ending to him. Now, can you and I even conceive of anything that falls in that category? We're used to everything having a beginning and having an end. But what is being said here in essence is just as in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, the emphasis in, in, in John 1, 1 is this, is that this, Jesus, the Son of God, was there. He precedes the beginning. He's there at the beginning. There are a lot of people who believe that Jesus was just a a good man that God created. This is what the social gospel is. That so many people in this country this morning are going to be hearing as the gospel. It is not the gospel. And what the social gospel says is this, is that, that Jesus was just a good man that God created to come into the world to show us what we're supposed to be like. So how do you get to heaven? You be like Jesus. You do the things that Jesus did, and you don't do the things Jesus didn't do, etc., 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 There's a sense in which 
Some people might think that Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is the most profound theological statement that was ever made, but I would say it's number two. That the way that the prologue begins makes this perhaps and most likely the most important and most significant theological statement that was ever made. What Genesis 1-1 teaches us is that God created. What John adds to that is he teaches us about the God who created. What is this God who created like? So one of the things that we need to glean from this prologue is this. is that God is creator. Christianity is very distinct from every other religion in a lot of ways. Every other religion, in essence, says that uh, if you believe that there's a God and, and that God has rules and etc. that you're supposed to keep, then it's your job to make yourself right with him. So how do you make yourself right with God? You do what God told you to do as best as you can do. And hopefully you'll do it well enough. Christianity says this, is oh by the way, there is a set of rules that we are bound by God to keep, but none of us do it. Therefore, we need someone who will do it for us, who has done it for us. And that's where Jesus comes into the picture. What the prologue tells us is there's more to know about God than just the simple fact that he is the creator you understand that there's a sense in which uh, the beginning of this prologue is one of the foundation stones for our whole concept of the doctrine of the Trinity? See, Christianity is very unique in a lot of ways, and one of those is this, is we are the only ones that believe that God is three in essence, but one in person. Or three in person and one in essence, rather. No one else believes anything like that. There are those who believe in multiple gods. But we don't believe in multiple gods. We believe in one God who is three in person. There's nothing like it. Sometimes people try to come up with analogies on how to describe the Trinity. And I'm just going to warn you not to do that. There's nothing that does that at all. So don't even try to do it. Every analogy that you'll come up with is downright heretical. There's nothing like it at all. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But again, the one thing we want to get from, from this opening verse is this. Is that the Son was with God at creation. When everything that is came into being. That makes him nothing less than God. 
Now, I've heard Jehovah's Witnesses tell other people that they actually are Christians. I don't know if you've heard any of them say something like that, but I have. Uh, and I want you to know something that they are not. They just simply are not because of what they believe. They don't believe in the Trinity. They believe that if Jesus is a God, that he's a lesser God. He's a God that was created by the God. Verse 3 also gives us word to a reason, very good reason, to conclude that in fact that the word that is being spoken of here is actually God. All things were made through him. There are many things that are very unique to God, and one of those is this, is creation. He's the only one that can create. He can, take, he, can, he can make things out of nothing at all. He's the only one who has the power to do that. And so for, for verse 3 to be true, that means this, that this logos, this word that was with God, is in fact God. Because nothing that was made was made apart from him. In other words, the power of creation demands that he be God himself. Nothing short, nothing less. Theologically, we talk about God's revelation in two different aspects. One of those is what we call general revelation, and the other is what we call special revelation. General revelation is a form of God revealing himself that's available to everyone. And that is this, is that when they look out upon creation by the immensity of the galaxies and the universe and, uh, and, and the mysteries of life and etc. here on earth, sufficient to demonstrate to anyone and everyone that there must be a God behind all of this. It didn't happen just by happenstance. General revelation is not sufficient to save anyone. It's sufficient to convince anyone and everyone that God, in fact, exists. But it's not sufficient to save anyone, and that's where this other type of revelation that we call special revelation comes into the picture. Special revelation goes beyond general revelation. And this is where we find a very clear picture of Jesus painted for us.
general revelation is available to everyone. So is special revelation in a, in a literal sense, but in a meaningful working sense, it's not. Because of the hardness of our heart, God must do something first of all before we will receive the message of special revelation. He must cause us to be born again. To be born anew. Verses 4 and 5, we read these words, In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you're looking at another translation, it might say, did not comprehend it. Jesus will later say in this gospel, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. I don't want to think about light for just a few minutes. Light is something that enables you and I to see. If there was no light, you and I could see nothing. Our whole perception of the world around us that comes through our sight is a product of light being emitted and our eyes receiving that and our brain processing it. Apart from the light of God, the world is a very dark place. And we're not talking about literally dark. We're talking about morally and spiritually dark. Jesus is the only one that brings light into that darkness. He will later say, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. If you know Christ, you know what he's talking about. R.C. Sproul said this, he said, for me, conversion was a point when the lights went on. When I realized that I had been in darkness before, but suddenly the lights went on and I saw things in a way, in a manner that I never had before. I understood things I had not grasped before. I saw that there was life in Christ and that he gives eternal life. If you believe in Christ, you have, a, you have uh, had an experience very similar to that, maybe not as Dynamic, maybe as others, but, but that light is at some time in your life come on. You may be one of those rare people who, who've always seen the light. You, there's not been a time in your life when you didn't know Christ. 
But if you're one of those who are, are a rare breed, there are not many that fall in that category. I think the vast majority of people in this room, there was a time when they didn't know Christ. But then the time came when the lights came on. And they began to understand things they didn't understand before. They began to see the, the answers to mysteries that they had no clue about before. There is an enlightening that takes place a deep enlightening that takes place at the time we come to faith in Jesus Christ. And we know that he is the one who flips the switch on. We don't. He enlightens us. And if he did not enlighten us, we would still be in the darkness. Sin has a blinding effect on people. Very often they believe that they see, but they really do not see at all. What they think they see is not real at all. Those who are unbelieving are blind. They're blind to this light. They're blind to the truth of God. Those blinders keep people from seeing the way that they really are. I would imagine for most of you at the time that those, the lights went on, one of the things that became very obvious to you was your own sin. And most of us go through life and we're looking around and we're saying, you know what, I know I've got some problems. I know I've messed this, that, and the other up. But look at so-and-so. You know, I've got to be doing better than they are. And, and, you know, and that sort of thing. We can always find people that are in worse condition than we are. And, and by that, we have some sense of feeling okay about ourselves. But when the lights really come on, when those blinders really come off, you see yourself for the dirty, nasty, rotten sinner that you really are for the first time. You see your desperate and absolute need for a Savior. Someone who does for you what you can't do, what you do not do for yourself. Someone that has the ability to make you right with God. An ability that you do not have yourself. Shouldn't surprise us with a lot of things going on in the world today because the truth, and you and I know this, is we're being led around by a bunch of blind people who just don't see the truth about hardly anything. They see what they think is the truth. They see a truth that they believe is real. And because we understand these things, and our response should be very different than it would be otherwise. We should be able to understand why some people have the perspective that they have, because not so many years ago, maybe my perspective would have been pretty much the same thing. 
Another thing that we need to consider as far as the light goes, and that is this, is that we are called to be the light of the world. To let our light shine in the darkness. We're all called to do that. And what we're talking about here is the light of Christ shining through us into the darkness around us. So Jesus is not only the light, he calls us to be light. And as we're being light, it means that we're going to react to different things in a manner very different than other people. There's a sense in which God makes his conduits to which the light of Christ shines into the world. Now, I don't warn you against something. You've heard me say this before. It's just, you know, sometimes things are very personal for me, and sometimes the, the illustrations I come with, up, up with, I think, that are best are ones that I have experienced myself. There are a few people in this room that knew me before I was a Christian. There are a few people that knew me as I was going through the process of becoming a Christian. But I was kind of on the fast track from the very beginning. Uh, I always had a lot of baggage to bring with me, and I was very judgmental of people. I had been my whole lifetime. The people I was most judgmental of were all the Christians I knew. <laughs> because what I saw in them, more than anything else, was people who claimed to believe this, that, or the other, but I didn't see them very much practicing those things in their own life. As far as I was concerned, pretty much every person that I had ever known in my life who, had cl who claimed to be a Christian was nothing but a bona fide hypocrite. I didn't see this group of open, welcoming, loving, caring people so much. What I saw was a bunch of judgmental hypocrites. Now you need to understand, that was, that was me. That was the sinner's perspective on things. And certainly there were people who had been part of my life who really were devoted to Christ and loved Christ. Etc. But what I'm just talking about is in a general sense of the word, I thought the church was full of hypocrites. Weak need people who needed something to lean on that wasn't really there. Sometime after about the first year, I, you know, when, when all things begin to take place with me, I begin to see my sin. But after a year or so uh, of, the, of dealing with a lot of things, I began to develop the idea that, well, I've just kind of left all of that behind me. I had the audacity at one time to ask God to show me my sin because it just was not apparent to me anymore. 
I would advise you not to ever do that. <laughs> because he may give you what you've asked for, and it will not be pretty. He slammed me to the ground. <laughs> He beat me up. He banged me up. I went around in deep depression for several months because I did not believe that I was capable of doing something that I actually did at that point. It was ugly beyond description. There's an internal battle that continues on in each and every one of us. There's still a vestige of worldliness in us. There's still that sinner's heart that, that's there. But it is a battle. And battles have to be fought. So even though we acknowledge that there's still this sin within me, we cannot be satisfied with it. We can't say, oh, well, that's just the way it is. I just learn, need to learn to live with it. The scriptures do not encourage us to have that mentality and attitude about it. We are encouraged over and over again to be actively engaged in putting sin to death. Not learning to live with it, but engaging it and killing it. There's a battle that we have to fight. You know, very often Christians are described in military terms. There's a battle that we're involved in. And one of the things that I learned early on is this, is you have to fight the internal battle before you're very effective at fighting the external battle. In other words, what I'm saying here is before we can become effective in the external battle, we've got to be fighting the battle that rages within us. The pudding of our own sin to death before we get so much involved in everybody else's sin that we become blinded by our own. Jesus says that you are the light of the world. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. So how do they see the light in us? They see them through the good things that we do in the name of Christ. So that they may, they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So one of the things that we should be confronted with when we consider Jesus as being the light, and, and that is, are we actually being the light? Is it something we even think about? Is it something that we actually do? Is it something that we pursue?
Paul writes these words, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is also part of our picture. So ultimately, it comes down to this. Are we reflections of the light of Christ into the world around us? Are we bearing his light to the world around us? Are we fighting that internal battle? Are we complacent about our own sin when we see the sins of other people so very clearly? Not just unbelievers, but we see the sins of other Christians very clearly. I really believe that the church would be transformed if we paid more attention to ourselves than we do to other people. What we're doing, what we're not doing, what we're saying, what we're not saying, etc., etc., etc. We have been enlightened. That makes all the difference. Every bit of the difference. Our life is not ours. It's not our own. We seem to think it is. We spend most of our time acting and behaving as if it is. But it just simply is not. We are bought and paid for. We are His. He came to serve. There's a sense in which He came to serve you to serve me he now calls us to serve him in life in all things Not just coming to church on Sunday morning and not going just going to Bible study. You know, it'd be very easy for us to really be stressed out and very upset about the circumstances that we find ourselves in politically now after all that's transpired lately. But maybe we need to have an entirely different attitude about it. I don't know about you, but I'm just absolutely disgusted about a lot of things. And I'm going, how could you let this happen, Lord? That God is the God of all things. We need to understand something, that all that has happened here has happened according to his perfect plan and purpose, period. 
what we should be looking at is this is opportunities because this will bring a lot of opportunities into our lap that probably never would come our way. To be those lights of Christ that shine forth in the darkness. The same thing is true with this COVID stuff. God is a God, not a... He's a God who's in absolute control. We need to understand that everything that comes, comes from God, that he has purpose in absolutely everything. It may not be clear to us. It may not make a lot of sense to us, but he has purposes in everything. This COVID is a gift from God, in a sense. For a lot of reasons, and one of those would be this. That it's, a, it's a way that he's gone, of something he's gone through to help us get our attention that we would remember the things that are most important, the things that are most crucial, the most important aspects of our life and our being. And we've already seen some really good things come out of this COVID, and we need to understand this, that there are a lot of good things that are going to come out of it that would not come out without it. We needed it. You and I needed to be put into circumstances that we are in right now. We need to figure out what those reasons are for it. There are a lot of people out there right now who thought they were in control or that somebody else was in control and this, that, and the other, and, and, and the, the rug's being jerked out from underneath them. They've got nothing to stand on. Their whole life philosophy has gone bye-bye. We should look upon this as one of the greatest opportunities in our lifetime to tell people where the solid ground really is. And an opportunity to show people that we know where it is. Our reaction to this whole thing should be very different than we see with a lot of other people. God is in control. He's in absolute control of everything all the time. He never ever loses control for one second. So I want you to spend some time this week thinking, how can the light of Christ shining in and through me be utilized to touch the hearts and the lives of other people? Right now, where we are. Sometimes we hinder the light. We're like lampshades. <laughs> Never thought of myself as a lampshade, but there's a sense in which we're lampshades, and some of us are darker lampshades than others. And it's the sin within us that's still there that keeps the light from shining 
forth absolutely, perfectly, and completely. But I want to encourage us in, in this. Don't be worried about what's coming. Be prepared for it, maybe. But you know what? There's no reason for a, for a Christian to ever worry about one diddly thing, ever. If you were in control, I would be worried a bunch. <laughs> and if I was in control, I would imagine you would be worried a bunch. Do you understand that the comfort and the peace that we get from knowing that we are not? You don't control anything, you nor me. Or I, whatever it's supposed to be. God controls it all. God created creation. God sent the Son into this world. God has brought us to the point in history where we are today as we sit here and we speak. Every single jot and tittle of human history is part of the script of Almighty God. Praises to him and to the light that enlightens us. Amen.